Welcome to Toil, the Week in Health Law, the ONC certified podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on November the 10th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my faithful co-host, Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And Frank and I really enjoy reading your reviews and comments on iTunes, where you can, of course, subscribe to the show. So uh, please go there if you have a moment. This week on Twill, we greet Jordan Paradise, Professor of Law at Loyola University Chicago School of Law, where she teaches administrative law, food and drug law, and health law. Her primary research focus is in the life sciences realm, examining legal and policy issues in the development and regulation of pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and innovations in medicine. Uh, Her recent interests span all sorts of fascinating topics, including nanotechnology, synthetic biology, precision medicine, gene editing, and electronic cigarettes. It's really great to have you on the pod, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed your uh, uh, your piece on e-cigarette uh, regulation. Uh, no Sisyphean task, uh, just how the FDA can regulate electronic cigarettes. Um, and I thought it would be useful to just sort of revisit your basic uh, arguments there and then maybe give the opportunity to sort of uh, add in a, uh, a postscript with regard to the 2016 regulations. So I have a couple of different pieces that I have put forth in the electronic cigarette realm. Uh, and it's really a fascinating study. I started uh, an interest in this. I'm a food and drug law person and tobacco products really don't fit nicely into the world of the Food and Drug Administration. And so um, I started getting interested in this uh, as there were a number of um, actions that the FDA started taking uh, against e-cigarette manufacturers and distributors uh, in the United States. And that started around uh, 2010. Uh, And that was right about around the time when the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act of 2009 was passed uh, by Congress that gave the FDA authority over certain types of tobacco products. Um, And in the enforcement cases, the FDA had started trying to assert uh, authority over electronic cigarettes, not as tobacco products, but as uh, drugs and medical devices, sort of hearkening back um, to efforts in the mid-90s by then um, Commissioner David Kessler to oversee um, cigarettes as nicotine delivery devices. And um, he ultimately failed uh, that effort uh, in 2000 uh, Supreme Court case Brown versus, um, uh, excuse me, FDA versus Brown and Williamson. Um, and so it really has a couple of um, fascinating lines really flowing through it. There's the Supreme Court case and um, the reasoning, the holding of the case, looking at the landscape of um, uh, um, uh, statutes in the United States, really dealing with uh, cigarettes and, and smoking. Um, and it, it was an action by the FDA to try to do a similar thing for electronic cigarettes, thinking that because they were such a novel technology um, that they could capture them within the realm of uh, drugs and devices, which failed for um, traditional cigarettes in the 2000 Supreme Court case. And so uh, in in one earlier piece, I, I look at that, I look at that relationship in the Supreme Court reasoning and ultimately finding that uh, cigarettes do not fall within the realm of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, definitionally, they aren't drugs, they're not devices. Uh, and looking at that larger uh, Uh, cigarette statute um, landscape and saying Congress didn't intend the FDA to have that authority over these types of products. 
And so it, it really harkened back to that um, uh, Supreme Court case and the FDA trying it a little bit differently this time with electronic cigarettes. Um, and with the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act of 2009, um, the, um, the statute really set out uh, a robust landscape of oversight by the Food and Drug Administration for tobacco products. And one of the aspects of that was really a straightforward definitional aspect about uh, tobacco products as being derived from tobacco, but then specifically setting out uh, restrictions and requirements for uh, products such as cigarettes uh, and um, uh, cigars and other types of products, but not specifically mentioning electronic cigarettes, although they left open the possibility for the FDA to act in order to deem other types of products within that realm of tobacco products. And so really what we're seeing from 2010, the early efforts of the FDA to restrict electronic cigarettes, um, is a series of um, guidance documents and finally um, a final rule now that we have where the FDA has uh, deemed uh, electronic cigarettes and, and what they call electronic nicotine delivery systems, they have deemed them to be tobacco products. So now they fall within um, the oversight regime of um, uh, other types of products, including uh, cigarettes. And so now we've got outcry from industry, which has really been happening for a couple of years now because those heightened requirements essentially mean that they may have to go through a pre-approval process. They uh, may have to go through a process of review if they're making modified risk claims and absolutely if they're making any claims about the intended use being to promote uh, smoking cessation, they need to go through the drug or device um, approval process. And so that has has left many companies in the lurch because they had experienced, um, you know, virtual unrestrained ability to enter the marketplace, and now they have really steep requirements that they um, may have to meet in order to continue on the market. Given the the way big tobacco has bought up a lot of these smaller e-cigarette manufacturers, is that going to be a major barrier for those, or will it just uh, assist them in in shutting out the smaller competitors? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. And and since 2010, the the market or the um, the companies in this realm have really changed. They've been bought out by the big tobacco companies, so you've got more money that can be infused into this process. Um, and so I, I think what this does is it further pushes out those smaller companies, um, and the, only the larger companies that are able to um, pay the user fees in order to submit their their products and uh, have their products evaluated by the FDA uh, are going to be able to survive. And I think uh, even uh, smaller distributors are also impacted by this because it's not just the electronic cigarettes, it's the um, it's the, the, the e-liquid, as it's called, the juice that goes into the electronic cigarettes that's also uh, regulated. And many of those distributors just um, just sell the e-liquid. But all of that is, is covered by uh, these regulations. If I could just take one step back, Jordan, because um, I so appreciate your attention to the incredible legal complexity and, and nuanced treatment of that. But if we could take a step back from, say, the public health perspective, I have had some conversations with folks in public health about the move towards, say, vaping or e-cigarettes, other sorts of things. Um, 
Is there any sort of consensus emerging in the community about the overall risk profile of, say, a move uh, towards e-cigarettes, or is that still just uh, emerging or murky? I think that's in development, and I, I'm blanking on the folks that are doing those studies right now, but there's public health studies that are ongoing, really having started in the last couple of years, trying to look at the risk profile of these types of products. And really, um, the question is, is focused on uh, a number of different areas. The first is is absolutely this concern that um, the youth, that children may um, be taking on um, vaping of electronic cigarettes for any number of reasons. And that may be attributing to this um, earlier use of uh, nicotine products by children that might not have started using any type of product. Um, the other segment is those who are smokers who are trying to quit. So there's a number of studies going on, um, looking at the benefits and the, the risks of uh, using electronic cigarettes and, and vaping as a means to cut down or eliminate uh, traditional cigarettes. And then there's also studies going on generally about the secondhand uh, smoke effects of electronic cigarettes and just the um, health impact generally. So I think all of that is ongoing right now in a number of different um, venues. You know, in terms of talking about the overall uh, regulatory landscape. I want to move to another piece of yours, although we, we can certainly come back to the to the e-cigarettes issue, um, which is a piece titled um, REMS as a Competitive Tactic. Is Big Pharma Hijacking Drug Access and Patient Safety? And I think this is such an interesting article in terms of uh, thinking about the unintended consequences of regulation, where your essential concern here is that even though risk evaluation and mitigation strategies are really helpful in terms of improving the surveillance or post-market oversight of drug products, there's a lot of concern that pharmaceutical companies are sort of strategically utilizing these types of provisions to, to stop generic competition. And I was wondering if you could comment on that as an overall problem and perhaps why the FDA seems to be um, unable to sort of mitigate the worst aspects of the strategic deployment of REMS. This is an area where I think it, it really is an overlap of an, a number of different things. There's uh, FDA regulation, of course, because they are the agency that's over seeing drug approval and biologic approval, and they are requiring at times certain risk evaluation and mitigation strategies that may um, put certain um, restrictions on product use or require certain post-market things be done. And it's really a, a very new authority that they've been given um, to do this. And really, they've just started implementing these, um, and there's a number of them that are in effect. But there's also um, a question about uh, intellectual property that creeps in here because the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies themselves may consist of any number of things. And one of them um, may be certain plans for the use of the product that take some sort of documented form. And some of that information may be information that a company has uh, patented. Um, so they have some sort of control over that information. Um, and therefore, that impacts the way other companies who may be uh, required to have a similar type of uh, label or labeling or other types of materials that go out to healthcare professionals or consumers, if they're required under the statute to have something similar to that, there's a question about intellectual property and, and patent protection that comes up because they're trying to use that information for their products. Um, so it raises really interesting intersection 
between the Food and Drug Administration and the USPTO and the Patent Scope. Um, and also the FTTC becomes a player here because there's been a number of um, cases asserting that there is uh, unfair competition and um, uh, monopolistic types of behaviors that the branded companies are engaging in to keep um, generics out of the market and they're utilizing the FDA provisions um, and their patent protection in order to do this. And, and one example that I point out in this piece um, is a case that um, has arisen in the District Court of New Jersey, uh, the Myelin versus Celgene uh, litigation. And, and right now, I don't know if that has been set for trial. I think it might be early 2017. But this is a case that was brought um, against Celgene by Mylan. Mylan trying to bring a generic product onto the market. Celgene already had um, Revlimid uh, on the market and Thalamid, which are two um, uh, very long-standing um, products, uh, drugs that have been approved by the FDA. Um, and Mylan is a that Celgene has used certain um, restrictions as a result of the REMS to prevent myelin from acquiring necessary samples in order to conduct bioequivalence testing, which is what is required for a generic product to be approved um, by the Food and Drug Administration. So they're asserting at the very basic level they can't even get access um, to these um, uh, drugs in order to do their bioequivalence testing um, at all. And so that's an, an ongoing legal battle right now between um, those two companies. My, my feeble little brain takes me some way down the drug regulation path. I understand, I think, pioneer drugs. I understand generics, Hatch-Waxman, and I think almost Bioware equivalents. But when we leave what I believe you call the, the small molecule drugs and, and wander over to biologics and biosimilars, I'm afraid uh, I, I, I lose track. So I can't resist, uh, given that we, we, we have captured you for a brief period of time here, to, to give me a, a slope into understanding uh, these much more complex issues. So traditional small molecule drugs are those that are chemically synthesized um, in the lab. Those are um, the drugs that are approved through the new drug approval process uh, that the FDA has set out for them both in the statute and um, through uh, additional requirements that they've put forth in the regulations. Um, and the Hatch-Waxman Hatch Act, which you brought up, uh, creates that generic um, pathway to market or the abbreviated new drug approval process. And those amendments in 1984 provided that abbreviated pathway to market based on this idea of bioequivalence um, to the branded pioneer um, chemical compound. And so that's that's the way that we think of um, traditional drug products as getting to the market. And like I said, these are smaller um, molecule drugs, relatively simple um, to synthesize. They are, for the most part, when a generic drug is approved, there is assurance that it is bioequivalent to or nearly identical to uh, the um, the reference product, the branded product uh, for which it is uh, attaching its uh, bioequivalent studies. Um, biosimilars, on the other hand, are uh, they're also uh, medical products that can be classified as drugs in the sense that they're used to treat um, certain um, medical conditions, but they're different in the 
the sense that they're not uh, easily synthesized small molecule drugs. They're larger, biologically complex uh, compounds that are derived from living sources. So it's really a, a source difference. Drugs, again, chemically synthesized. Uh, biologics are those that are uh, naturally derived from living things. And so uh, just as a remnant of historical uh, differences um, that have existed since um, 1902, there's two statutes that oversee drugs uh, and biologics. Uh, drugs are overseen by the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, uh, originally 1906 Act, creating the drug um, categorization and certain baseline requirements. And then biologics themselves actually started uh, being overseen in 1902, prior to the passage of the um, uh, the drug uh, oversight uh, regime. And that was really focused on vaccines and these types of biologic products. So they've existed separately since the early 1900s. And it hasn't been until recently that the FDA and Congress have worked to bring those processes as nearly parallel as they can. But one remnant of this separation by different statutes is the fact that Hatch-Waxman did not amend the biologics statute in order to create an abbreviated process for biologics for a number of different reasons. Uh, so it wasn't until the Affordable Care Act that there were provisions built in to create an abbreviated route to market for biologic types of products. And that's the biosimilar process that I've looked at, um, the abbreviated pathway to bring biologic products to market, which is not based on this concept of bioequivalence, uh, but it's based on this idea of products being highly similar, which scientifically is a difference and it's an important difference and FDA is still working out what all of that means for approval. Um, but the two abbreviated routes to market are really seen as um, similar in the sense as they get products to uh, the market quicker, um, but there's many, many differences on the scientific um, basis of that and, and what it looks like on a case-by-case -case basis for biologic uh, manufacturers. Is there a, an IP twist to this when you're, when you're doing biosimilars of biological products? Is that a similar kind of issue we get with small molecules or does it uh, raise different issues? Drug sponsors and, and drug manufacturers are the companies that, that oversee uh, or that, that sponsor uh, the development of these drugs. They're, they're getting uh, patent protection for both types of um, of products. And so that that profile doesn't really look that different. Um, and all of this is going to go to the claim drafting and, and how the the, um, the molecule itself or the biological the biologic product itself is going to be um, uh, claimed in the patent. So there's similar concerns that arise in both of those contexts. You, you've really given us a great sense of the history of the law here and some of the sort of push and pull between, say, efforts to what some would say overprotect, say, the biologics and then sort of a pushback in the ACA to um, uh, create paths uh, to uh, bioequivalence and to allowing other competitors to get in. 
I was wondering if you could describe for readers, um, and this question is inspired by your recent piece on biopharma consolidation, um, your impressions of, of whether this legal regime is sort of optimal uh, in terms of promoting innovation, or whether, say, it might be leading to excessive consolidation, perhaps because of the, um, the, the types of regulatory or intellectual property strategies necessitated by this, this thicket of law. You're talking about a piece that uh, I, I recently did. It came out in Loyola's uh, health law publication, and, and that really uh, started from an event that Loyola hosted last year on consolidation, and one of the panels that I was on was specifically looking at uh, consolidation in the life science realm. And to be perfectly honest, when I was asked to come and speak on that topic, I thought, I don't know that I have anything to say about this. I don't really know about consolidation in the life science realm, because you don't you don't really hear about it framed in that way. Um, mergers and acquisitions in the context of uh, healthcare and hospitals is really what's in the news. And so I took it upon myself to try and learn what was going on in this realm. And so that piece is really um, my attempt at getting my head around what exactly this looked like. What does consolidation look like in the life science realm and what are the drivers for it? And and what I really did was look uh, to publications by the uh, Federal Trade Commission, the FTC reports dating back to the 1980s all the way up through 2014, I think. And it was three uh, reports where they were uh, laying out the basics of um, actions that they had brought flagging potential problems with um, notifications of mergers that they had received uh, from uh, from industry, from the uh, biopharma companies themselves. And so I really just looked through um, those actions and the result and the consent orders that resulted from them and tried to break down and categorize what was going on. And so part of that was a look at what might be motivating these companies to merge. And I looked at a few different factors and the intellectual property landscape was absolutely one of them because, as we all know, patents for blockbuster drugs are expiring. There is... Um there is a lot of concern um, among industry that their products aren't going to be protected anymore, that there's no longer um, that um, uh, availability of uh, robust protection in that realm. Uh, and also uh, concerns about the Affordable Care Act and how that um, is impacting um, not only uh, healthcare and hospitals, but also pharmaceutical companies that are developing the products um, in this realm. And so I, I looked at some of those motivations and also the outcomes of these consent orders uh, in order to really, um, you know, have some sort of idea of what was going on here. And it was interesting to see because I, I looked through those reports and I found, uh, based on my own characterization, and so there are, there are limitations, as I will point out in this article, I do point out that there are limitations to my methodology, um, but I did find 54 uh, descriptions of consent orders and I looked through what was required in each of those and it was, it was really fascinating to look look at how um, different aspects of the um, the industry relationship was really um, set out in what the FTC was concerned with. And so what I had found is that I could characterize 
those types of provisions in a number of different areas. And one of them was absolutely intellectual property issues. Um, but also there was a, a number of requirements uh, about uh, confidentiality and return and transfer of uh, certain um, assets as well as supply arrangements. So if there was going to be a merger between uh, two life science companies, two uh, biopharma companies, this idea that uh, there would be a an easy transition um, of these uh, products that may already be in the R&D development phase where there um, needed to be an ongoing um, uh, arrangement in order to get the chemical compound, in order to do the clinical trials, or in order to get um, uh, information, in order to, to get that product to market. Um, there was also certain uh, requirements imposed for um, monitoring and uh, in, um uh, requiring trustees to oversee certain aspects of product development um, of of the uh, companies that were merging, and so uh, it it really crossed over a number of of topics, including intellectual property and uh, supply arrangements and confidentiality um, and uh, competition as well. You quoted at one point a Forbes article reporting that the major outcome for R and D and mergers is that there will ultimately be fewer scientists in R and D. And fewer ideas being pursued, you know, as one as one approach to this. I'm wondering, did you feel like there were some efficiencies in some of these mergers, um, or do you think that that is sort of it's much more driven by, say, taking advantage of tax issues or other uh, the other considerations other than efficiency here? There were a number of them that seemed to be for efficiency. Um, it, it wasn't easy to classify them all as as being undertaken for one reason or the other. And in the in the article, I do actually lay out, I think about six or seven uh, motivating factors that seem to be going on here. Um, and efficiency, absolutely, when you've got a number of, of companies that are um, pursuing similar types of endeavors, whether it's you know synthesizing specific chemical compounds for use in um, uh, certain indications, there might be um, overlap that's going on and a recognition that if you um, consolidate your efforts, it's going to be less costly. Um, and lead to a, a better product. And um, you may have um, uh, different strengths that are able to be um, utilized when you, uh, when you consolidate the, uh, the two companies. And also, I think it's a response to, um, to uh, competition generally when there uh, are, there is a concern out there that there's less blockbuster drugs to be discovered, that we've already really, you know, picked up all of the low-hanging fruit. Um, everything that is going to make a lot of money and reap um, really robust patent protections has already been discovered. Um, so there is concern um, that there is a need to really focus on efforts and, and consolidation might be one way to make that happen. I read your uh, legal and regulatory status of biosimilars piece, and you, you, you point out there that that biosimilars are not generic biologics, that with biologics, we're looking at highly similar ideas, not perhaps looking at bioequivalents. So that seems to play out in your article in a couple of ways. First, with regard to product naming, and secondly, with regard to substitution laws. I wonder if you could lead us through those two ideas. This piece, um, it came out in the American Journal of Law and Medicine in, in 2015, and it it's 
it's a chunky article. It's doing a number of different things because I, at this point and, and still continuing, am really interested in the development of the FDA regulation and oversight in this realm of biosimilars because it's such a, a recent uh, development, this pathway, as I mentioned, just created within the Affordable Care Act. So the FDA has been tasked with a number of different things in implementing this and really getting this new abbreviated pathway off the ground. And so this piece aims to look at a, a number of the moving parts. And I guess I could characterize the moving parts as um, approvals in general. How is the FDA approving these types of products? Uh, and really the statute sets out two tiers of products. And, and I wanted to point that out because that does link into your question about the state substitution laws. Uh, the statute sets out uh, a... Um, categorization of biosimilar products, um, which is connected to this idea of the products being highly similar. Um, and this is where this is uh, compared to the bioequivalents. It's not a generic biologic, it's a biosimilar. Um, because these biological products, um, uh, they have such a different profile than um, chemically synthesized drugs. There's more variation in individual patients. Um, there uh, is more importance about storage and handling and manufacturing. And so Congress... Um, um, utilized the term highly similar in order to note that distinction and really gave the FDA a lot of authority to determine what kinds of scientific studies and measures and comparisons they needed uh, from industry to show this highly similar. And this is very much a case-by-case -case basis right now. The FDA has issued a number of guidance documents, um, but it is very much specific to the product that is being assessed. And so far, the FDA has only approved four biosimilar products um, uh, since March 2015. Um, on the other hand, there's also within that statute that Congress set out an interchangeable designation. And what this does is it's, it's heightened. It's biosimilarity, meaning that the product is highly similar to the originator biologic product. It's highly similar to, and in addition, it can be substituted for another product without having some type of adverse impact on the patient. And this really looks at the individuality uh, of patient responses to drugs. So there's those two tiers within the statute, the biosimilar status, and like I said, there's been four of those approved, and interchangeable status, which is this heightened status, uh, which links to the idea that it can be substituted um, in an individual patient without any adverse repercussions. And so um, the interchangeability links to this idea about states now taking it upon themselves to draft state substitution laws. And these state substitution laws, uh, I believe they have taken effect in about 23 states so far. The last time I looked, I think um, last month there had been 23 of them uh, enacted. These go to the products that are going to be deemed interchangeable by the Food and Drug Administration. And it's important to point out that nothing yet has been uh, designated as interchangeable. The FDA has not assessed any products for interchangeability. It's very much an ongoing um, type of uh, conversation by the Food and Drug Administration um, because it is this, this heightened uh, additional um, uh, uh, consideration that's built into it. But the state substitution laws are forward-looking in the sense that they um, look 
look to address the situation of when we do have an interchangeable product. Um, what must be done in order for that product to be substituted? So the the, the inquiry um, that we know very well in the generic drug realm, all 50 states have generic substitution laws. When can a generic drug be substituted for the brand drug? And there's all sorts of variations on how the physician needs to designate whether it can be substituted or not and whether the pharmacist then um, substitutes um, uh, one type of drug versus the other. And those have been well established for decades. But the state substitution laws in the interchangeable context are a little different. Um, And they're looking like they have some variation that might ultimately lead to some issues as we develop interchangeable products. And they they have a a number of different um, aspects to them. The first is the um, notification. Does there need to be notification to the patient that they are getting a substituted pro- uh, product? Does there need to be notification to the physician that that product has been substituted? Because the question is then, the physician's in a better place to speak with the patient about any adverse impacts that might be happening. And if they don't know that there's been substitution, it's harder to have that conversation. Um, there's also a number of states that have built in a right to refuse. So consumers, customers can say, I don't want you to substitute that. I want the higher priced uh, innovator biologic. Uh, Some of the states, most of the states require um, reporting, long-term reporting on the part of the pharmacy uh, in order to keep track potentially of adverse events that are happening and and how a certain patient, uh, how their development has um, um, uh, gone forward with the use of a specific type of drug, or excuse me, biologic drug. Uh, And the piece also looks to the naming issue, as you mentioned, Nick, and the naming issue is also relevant to the question of what consumers know about what what they're taking. What is this biologic that has been um, uh, prescribed? And the naming issue was only recently resolved by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, They had been waffling for a while on whether they were going to assign a completely unique name to these types of uh, biosimilar products or whether they were going to um, use some sort of prefix or suffix in order to identify that there is a biosimilar version of the Innovator product. Uh, And in uh, guidelines that were just recently issued, I believe in August of 2016, um, or, or maybe earlier this year, they they set forth what their thinking was on the naming and the 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 guidelines set out this idea that they're going to use the core um, uh, product name, the sort of I don't want to say the generic name, but the the bio biological product name, followed by a hyphen and four uh, four letters that need to be unique uh, and that are going to set apart the bio similar from the innovator product. So it does, in a sense, have a unique identifier uh, that will enable post-market surveillance, um, any issues that may come up that require a recall, it'll be easier to identify. Um, And so that naming issue has really just recently been resolved. It is a really complicated landscape, Jordan. And um, I mean, it raises so many interesting issues in terms of a battle over the soul of consumer protection, I would think, is one. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I would love for you, to, if you could elaborate on that that angle or that facet of this problem. 
Yeah, and, and that's a really interesting part of it is to hear who are the voices, who are the folks that are getting involved in these debates and, and getting concerned about this. And and the the state substitution laws, I'll, I'll take just as an example, um, intense, intense, intense efforts by industry um, to lobby against or even draft the wording of these state substitution laws. And then you have um, certain um, communities of patient advocacy groups and even um, ARP, for example, that are taking positions on the state substitution laws and how they may impact um, patients. And there is a concern about levels of transparency and, and what information is going to be fed back to the consumer and what information do they deserve to know about the product that they're taking. So alongside the development, both of the state substitution laws and the naming, um, the, it's gone hand in hand um, with advocacy from uh, patient groups um, as opposed to industry on what these laws and what these naming regimes need to look like. And it really is all about transparency um, and information. And that was The Week in Health Law. A very big thank you to Professor Paradise. Uh, Jordan, that was great fun. Boy, you you have this stuff down cold. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. So we post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter, uh, where sometimes I bump into Frank. At Health PI. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. 